Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Are extraterrestrials choosing little-known people to convey vital information to humanity? Why don't they, as the saying goes, just land in the White House lawn? Why do some people have positive experiences with UFOs and ETs and others negative ones? Hello and welcome to the 796th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON, 1240 AM and 99.3 FM, and this is our 12th year on the air. I'm Ben, and uh, today we welcome an old friend to continue a journey into the strange world of experiencers. And uh, we welcome your calls today. Number is uh, 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere. And you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Kathleen Marden is a leading UFO researcher, the author of several books, a featured on-camera commentator, and an international lecturer. She holds a bachelor's degree in social work and worked as an educator and education services coordinator while attending graduate school. She is a master-level practitioner of the quantum healing hypnosis technique. Her interest in UFOs and contact began in 1961 when her aunt and uncle, Betty and Barney Hill, had a close encounter and subsequent abduction in New Hampshire. White Mountains. She has been the Mutual UFO Network's Director of Experience and Research since 2011 and is on the Board of Directors of the uh, Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters, or FREE, F-R-E-E is the acronym. Kathleen always makes it clear that the opinions expressed are her own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the organizations with which she is affiliated. Three of Kathleen's books were co-written with the late nuclear physicist, a scientific ufologist, uh, Stanton Friedman, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, Science Was Wrong, and Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. A fourth book, The Alien Abduction Files, features our friend Denise Stoner's contribution. Her fifth book, Extraterrestrial Contact, uh, what to do when you've been abducted will be released on September 1st. Her website, Kathleen-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N, dot com. So Kathleen Martin, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. It's great to be back with you today. Oh, well, it's, you know, it's always, always a pleasure. So as our, our listeners know, Stan uh, T. Friedman, cer- certainly the father of modern uh, UFO studies, translated on uh, May 13th. And... Kathy, you worked with him very closely um, for many, many years, so we can't begin uh, without you know getting your thoughts on, on losing such a towering figure. So how did you guys meet? Stanton and I met through my aunt, Betty Hill. Uh, he was the scientist who was called upon to um, find other scientists who could vet the work of Marjorie Fish. And Marjorie Fish was a woman a brilliant woman from Ohio. Uh, she belonged to Mensa, meaning she had a genius-level IQ. Uh, she was a teacher, and she saw Betty's star map in the first book that was ever published about the case, uh, The Interrupted Journey. And she thought that perhaps if she could find uh, this constellation or whatever it is, in space that she would be able to identify what where those non-human entities were coming from. So she set out to do research, going to the university, copying the distance data, the characteristics of all of the stars in our local galactic neighborhood, and building three-dimensional models using frames, monofilament line, and beads of various sizes and colors 
to represent the stars. She actually had 253 stars in one of those maps uh, that she drew. She uh, constructed 23 in all, still did not have a match uh, after doing this for several years. And finally, in 1971, a new catalog was released, and it had uh, more accurate distance data. She moved some of the stars around. She added stars that were not on the map, and in the end, she finally did have a match. So uh, she, at that point, was attempting to find scientists who would vet her work to determine whether or not it was accurate. And Stanton Friedman was called in by Coral Lorenzen, who was the uh, director, co-director of the Aerial Phenomena Research Association, uh, organization. Uh, and Stanton uh, was able to find scientists to vet Marjorie's work. And he and Marjorie met with these scientists, and they determined that her work was accurate. And so this was a big deal. And then uh, Stanton set out to uh, defend that star map. He was the first person to publish an article um, about the star map and Marjorie's work. And he went on for many, many years uh, to debate uh, other scientists such as Carl Sagan, and who was a classmate of Stanton's, at the University of Chicago, and um, to, to have a debate to defend the star map, whereas Carl Sagan believed that anyone could throw marbles into a, into a pile of sand and come out with um, identifiable, uh, identifiable star systems. Wow. But there were certain properties to that star system, the constellation of stars that Marjorie uh, was able to identify that are not common uh, among other guesses at, at what stars might be on Betty's map. All of the stars that were connected by lines on Betty's map are considered to be sun-like stars, stars that could have planets that could have developed life. Oh, we, uh... The stars are in a plane. So that was important, too. It would be easier to travel from one to the other. And those two stars in the foreground were Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2. So uh, that is how I met Stanton. That's and quite then, dramatic. <laughs> I, I have lots of friends, but I never met them in quite, uh, quite that uh, dramatic way, I must say. Yeah. 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 So how did you come to work with him? Well, I had done many years of investigation and research on my aunt and uncle's case, I wanted to determine scientifically, as from the perspective of a person with a background in social science, such as I have, um, to uh, determine whether or not that experience was real. There were so many uh, skeptics who had come forward and given uh, hypothetical arguments against it. So I set out to uh, examine all of the evidence to uh, uh, take the transcripts from the hypnosis and type out all of those transcripts for comparative analysis 
to, I even, uh, and my husband and I drove the entire route in the same time frame, stopping where Betty and Barney did. I played devil's advocate with Betty. And in the end, I had um, the first draft to a manuscript that I had written for this book. Now, before Betty passed, she said to me, if you need any help with that book, the one person you should go to is Stanton Friedman. Hmm. You can trust what he says. He's a trustworthy person. And so I decided I certainly did need help because I did. I wanted to get that book published. I didn't want to spend several years uh, learning everything I could about the star map. Stanton had already done that and had quite successfully defended Marjorie's work. So I was at a MUFON symposium, Mutual UFO Network annual symposium in Denver, Colorado. And uh, I tried to approach Stanton uh, between lectures all day long. And I got, I had walked up to his table, and it was always surrounded by a, a semicircle of tall men. And I'm five <laughs> feet tall. You know, he couldn't even see me. I couldn't get through. They were all engaged in lively conversation. And I almost gave up. On that. In fact, I spoke to someone else about um, taking part in the book and not Stanton. I was so frustrated. <laughs> and then finally, the end of the day, I tried one last attempt. And sure enough, he was alone at the table packing up his last books. So I said, I have something I'd like to talk with you about. It's work that I've done on the Hill case. And, and he said... Uh, have you had dinner yet? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, let's go into the restaurant and we'll talk about it. Hmm. And so we did. And uh, at the end of our conversation, he said, I'm very interested, particularly since I had Betty's entire collection, the whole archival collection at my wow. home. And I was setting up an archive for the University of New Hampshire, selecting what I wanted to go there as the trustee and executor of their estate. So I said Stanton could examine all of that, copy anything that he wanted to photocopy. And so finally he said he was extremely interested and would like to come to my home. He came down and spent several days with us as we went through the entire collection and uh, he read my manuscript, and in the end, he was very intrigued by everything. He told me that he would be willing to participate because he could see that I was being scientific and I was being unbiased. And so uh, we set out on this journey together, him in uh, New Brunswick, I in Stratum, New Hampshire at that time, and uh, communicated via email and phone calls. And um, he uh, kept reviewing my work. I'd send him one chapter at a time, and, and uh, he thought that it was remarkably accurate. He found one mistake. It was a misquote. And I was amazed that he actually saw or could dis differentiate what was uh, accurate from that one word that I misquoted. And uh, so 
he kept saying to me, you're doing a great job. Continue writing. Continue with the, you know, the second draft and everything that I was doing. And in the end, he ended up writing two chapters in that book. The two chapters on the star map. Because he had just been so diff- so tied up traveling and he had a very heavy schedule at that time. He was much younger. And uh, so finally, uh, we finished our book together and now it was time to publicize the book. So we started doing radio shows together. Sometimes we did on-camera interviews together and worked at conferences. We had shared vendor tables. Sometimes we even lectured on the same stage. And we found out that we worked very comfortably together. And I think the strong point was that he was a physical scientist and I was a social scientist. We were looking at this whole case from those perspectives, but it meshed very well together. And we did have a great time working together. Uh, he was such a good companion. Uh, he, he filled me with laughter. He had such a great sense of humor yes, that I really did. looked forward to working together. Exactly. Um, you were, so uh, we, <clears throat> I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say from there we went on to write two more books together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was just a very fulfilling time. I'll always be grateful to him for giving me that time initially, for not just blowing me off uh, without knowing what I could do, and to actually put the time in to uh, determine that I uh, was as smart a person as he wanted to work with, had the background that he wanted to work with, and... uh, admired what I did as much as I admired what he did. So it was a great working relationship. Well, I know we would always look forward to seeing the two of you, particularly at the uh, Exeter UFO Festival, which is one of our favorite events. And mm-hmm. I remember you. we would always come in, uh, and uh, I would usually be the first one there to set up, but you would always have the ta- you know, sacred to you two was, was the table just opposite the door in the author's room. And yeah. it was good for us, too, but we would always be on your left, and people mm-hmm. would there would always be, as you say, a semicircle of well, tall or short people, you know, around you and stand. And if we were lucky, they they'd turn right to, and then they'd <laughs> see us. They'd come over to us. So it, it was a sort of a symbiotic relationship that way. But we always um, will miss. Uh, you, will you be there this year in Exeter? Yes, I will. Oh, good. Well, we'll look forward to that. But uh, certainly, um, uh, it'll be always a tribute to Stan, to, at least to us. We'll always think of him in, the, in that spot. And I remember, yeah. no matter how hot it got in that town hall, which has no air conditioning, he would always be in a jacket and tie. Mm-hmm. The first time we met him in 2010, it was 90 degrees in there, and he was in that tie. Always the consummate professional. But anyway, um, we'll move on from, from then. We uh, are having a special tribute show to Stan on June 23rd for the listeners, and uh, we will. We had planned actually to have him with us as a tribute to his retirement, but obviously the fates had other plans, and um, we will uh, nevertheless render tribute with, uh, I know that you can't call in, but I think we'll play some recordings from, from this show, and yeah, uh, have other, other associates call in as well, so thank you for those thoughts. Um, it, very well put. Okay, so let's move on to the subject of the experiencers. Can you give us the background 
of the uh, MUFON experiencers uh, survey and study. Now, we did a show on this before, but we didn't get anywhere near um, really into it. So if you could give us a background on, on that study, we can take it from there. Okay. Well, let me back up to 2011 when Denise Stoner and I did a small study on 75 people, 50 experiencers in a 25-person control group. And we identified characteristics uh, that experiencers had in common that were not common among the general population. Then we went on to uh, help Ray Hernandez from the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters uh, set up his experiencer questionnaire. And I'm on the board of directors of that organization, and Denise was actively involved in it as well. So they had a, a very large study that they did with about 4,000 self-identified experiencers, but no control group. So I'm my social science background tells me, so what if you have 4,000 people who claim they have these, are having these experiences? How do you know? if they really are. And so uh, when we set up MUFON's study, uh, Denise again helped with questions, uh, uh, several other members of the experiencer research team, of which I'm the director, uh, helped to write questions. We had 118 questions in all. And we decided that this time the cutoff was going to be at 500, not 75. We ended up with 516 um, participants in the study. And then a member of our team is Dr. Don C. Dondary. Dr. Dondary is now a retired psychology professor and assistant dean from McGill University. He spent his entire life uh, conducting social research. He was in the psychology department and he's also a statistician. So he was the perfect person to ask to um, work with a control group. And he uh, suggested the, that he would administer the American Personality Inventory. The American Personality Inventory was a psychological uh, inventory that he standardized it started out with more than 600 questions and was eventually condensed by him to 65 questions. And what this inventory would determine would be um, if people were actually abductees, if they had an, um, an alien abduction experience, and he called it alien abduction syndrome. They had the knowledge and they had the emotional makeup of abductees. There was another group, uh, and that was a group of simulators. Those individuals who had a lot of knowledge of alien abduction, they, but they were wannabes. They were people who wanted to have these experiences, <laughs> but hadn't. And he could determine that through the American Personality Inventory. So we'd have another group clustered around there. And then we would have a third group. And those were the controls, members from the general population. 
who didn't have knowledge of this and who certainly had not had their own experience. So those were the three groups that were to be targeted and identified on the American personality inventory. So in the end, uh, we ended up with uh, 175 individuals who took part in phase two, uh, who agreed to take the American personality inventory. We were expecting to find people clustered very closely around those three targets. We found people clustered around the wannabe target, the simulators. We found people clustered around the uh, control target, people who just wanted to hoax us to try to uh, throw off our results. And then we found some people who were clustered around the um, UFO abduction syndrome target, but there was a very broad range of people, ranging from uh, individuals who uh, claimed that they were having highly positive contact experiences, maybe channeling uh, non-human entities, to a few people who were having a highly negative evil uh, kind of experiences too, but they all thought that it was with extraterrestrials. So then we had to say, what actually is going on here? Um, and we had to look at their responses on the uh, experiencer survey that we had written. Okay. Well, let's uh, get into this by simply asking um, a few uh, questions, a question or two that have come in from listeners. Uh, but before that, um, we just received a message from Shane Searway, our uh, mutual friend and uh, very popular co-host, a guest co-host on the show, who just sends his greetings and uh, he says he's enjoying the show. So, oh, great! Thank right. you. I like Shane. So uh, everybody loves Shane. So um, this is from uh, our faithful listener, Peter, in Columbia, South America. And Ben, if you would uh, do the honors. Sure. Alrighty. so Peter writes to us, Kathleen, I imagine you receive abduction reports from other countries. So what details are different? Anything interesting? Well, I have to say that around the world, I'm finding that people are having the same types of experiences and that the most prevalent group uh, are the grays. And there's not just one gray group. There are several, and they don't all look the same, too. But for the most part, what we find is we have the little short grays that uh, we don't even know are if they're sentient beings. They, they might possibly be bio-robotic. They're the ones who uh, seem less intelligent, than the others. They make mistakes. They might dress, take somebody's clothing off and then dress them in somebody else's clothing. That happens very rarely, though. Um, they're the ones who go and, and uh, take people from their homes or from their vehicles or wherever they are. They're the ones who make sure you don't get off the craft with anything that belongs to them. Hmm. And then you have the taller group. And those are generally the uh, those who communicate with experiencers. 
who see them time and time again throughout their lifetime, make them feel very comfortable. Uh, once they get over that fight-or-flight response and find themselves on the craft, uh, they're the ones who are the educators, the scientists, uh, the physicians. They're the ones who can communicate telepathically with the human beings. So that's basically uh, the groups of grace. The second group most prevalent is those who look like humans. Uh, They tend to be taller, or the men are about six feet tall or taller. Uh, The women also are about six feet tall, so about a foot taller than I am, and tend to (laughs) have light hair, Mm -hmm. uh, large eyes that have an iris that is larger than ours. Uh, They tend to be more benevolent than the greys. They're thought of as being a kinder group. They don't take you on and and uh, extract genetic material from you, do scientific experiments on you. It's more for communication. Okay. We're going to take our bottom of the, of the hour break here. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON, 1240 AM and 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley and our amazing guest, Kathleen Martin. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Hi, Moose Man here. The group line is there every Thursday live between 1 and 2 p.m. and replayed at 6 to 7 p.m. All your favorites, a variety of rock, and the Beatles every single week. That's the group line right here on ON. Hi, I'm Dave Gobiel, the president of the Blackstone Valley Bi-Local Group, supporting and promoting the independently owned businesses of our area. If you're not a member, I'd love a chance to sign you up. Message me at our Bi-Local Blackstone Valley Facebook page or go to buylocalbv.org if you wish to sign up today. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON AM and FM. And uh, we're talking with our, our good friend and amazing uh, UFO researcher and uh, with, with an incredible background, Kathleen Martin. Uh, and we're talking about the experiencer's experience, I suppose. So, Kathy, uh, continue if you would. Yeah, so uh, the man from South America, just he asked... Uh, what the difference was between uh, having around the world, uh, what we find is that in some countries uh, there is not the support that you will find in places like Brazil, for example, the support for experiencers in the United States, uh, in Australia, but Recently, I did a series uh, via Skype video for the people of China because over there, there there are people who are being abducted and there is no one who can support them because they're not allowed to gather together. Mm -hmm. And so you have these people who are really suffering. So I worked with a lawyer from China who lives in Australia on a series to help the Chinese people uh, sort of in a supportive way. So uh, I think that a lot of what we find depends upon the level of support and understanding that people around the world have. 
some cultures uh, just accept this. It's It's been in their history, these sky people or star people, and uh, they understand it. Uh, many believe that um, these are elders. Uh, others believe that they uh, come to Earth from time to time to assist in our development. Um, so I think that the difference is in the human response to uh, what is occurring. And I think that here in the United States, we have a very good understanding of that, whereas in some other countries, uh, you don't have the support and understanding. And one of the things that I work very hard on uh, initially is to reach out to experiencers so that they could have support. So I went through the Mutual UFO Network. I was asked to uh, set up an experiencer research team, a group, and I came up with the idea that in not just investigation, what about people who don't want an investigation? They only want supports, a non-judgmental listener uh, who will they can tell their story to, someone who will be sympathetic, someone who uh, might help them to gain insight into what is occurring. And so now we have on the ERT at MUFON about uh, 30 people who are assisting experiencers on a day-to-day basis. And you can go to the MUFON website at MUFON.com, scroll down to Experiencer Research Team, and then click on uh, the Experiencer Questionnaire. Uh, you'll have 30 questions, and by filling that out, you will be able to speak with a non-judgmental member of the team. You don't have to have someone coming to your house looking for physical evidence. Well, that's very noble. I didn't realize the Chinese connection. I, I hadn't heard that before, but that, that's, that sounds like very important work. So, uh, Kathy, one, one of the, uh, as we all know, one, one of the, the uh, original questions that arose, I think, probably within the UFO uh, world, so to speak, was why do they seem, they be, whoever they may be, uh, convey important messages through ordinary folks rather than land on the White House lawn? I mean, what, what would you say to that? Well, first of all, I would say, who speaks for planet Earth? Uh, yeah. Certainly not the President of the United States. So are they going to land si- simultaneously at every capital uh, around the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that they have attempted to communicate with leaders around the world one at a time, and that attempt was rejected. They were uh, seen as a threat uh, to national security, for example. So uh, their mission then became contacting people from all walks of life around the world to communicate with them and to start from the bottom up, hoping that, hoping that this knowledge will be disseminated to people of, around the world and that eventually we will reach a tipping point where people just average citizens know that this is real. Um, I'm not saying that every uh, group is benevolent. They're not. There are some who are not 
uh, nice to humans at all. They don't uh, have our best interest in mind. They have their best interest in mind. They think they own this planet. They take our natural resources and they take our human resources too. So, uh, but that's a smaller percentage. So uh, basically, the the more benevolent groups uh, are, say they're here to assist in our development, and they have concern about um, our stewardship to our environment, to our planet. They're concerned that uh, we could destroy the planet if we keep moving in the direction that we are in warlike behavior, for example, in the use of nuclear weapons. So that seems to be a pretty common message that has been delivered since the mid-1950s and continues to be delivered. Okay. Um, I, well, I have some more questions in that vein, but I think there's one more question from, from Peter that we haven't asked. Is that correct, Ben? There is. It doesn't really pertain to the subject, but we can ask it. What do you mean it doesn't pertain to the subject? Well, it pertains to the subject, but we're, it's, it's veering oh, no, in a different direction. Not that particular. All right, well, just yeah, so not this particular facet. Let, 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 so let's pose it. the question anyway. Yes. So uh, Peter continues with, uh, can you please share the most interesting abduction case which has been reported to you? Well, there are so many that are really very interesting and, and fascinating. Let me talk about my most recent you know, because I knew Betty and Barney's case was probably the most fascinating to mm. me. But you've heard a lot about that. <laughs> um, I w- recently worked with a woman from North Carolina who was uh, is a paranormal researcher, highly respected, and she was referred to me by Stanton Friedman uh, because he was impressed with the work. He'd met her at a conference where both were speakers. And what she was looking for was uh, a confirmed experiencer uh, whose house she could go to to see if she could collect electronic voice uh, phenomena and um, listen to what maybe these ETs were saying, uh, messages being sent. So I arranged that. And she and her research associate went to this house uh, of an experiencer. Uh, It had rained earlier in the day, so they didn't set their equipment up until 10 o'clock at night. Uh, And they, lo and behold, see this very strange object next to the moon, which was about uh, three-quarters full. And the object is growing larger and larger. The next thing they know, they're not holding their equipment anymore. It's on the wet ground behind them, and they would never have put it there. They are weaving back and forth and feeling nauseated. They pick up their equipment. They go into the experiencer's home. His wife is waiting in the kitchen for them and said, I have been looking for you for the longest time. Where did you go to? And uh, certainly they didn't intentionally leave. So uh, I did the hypnosis session with her. And what we discovered was that she and probably the other two, too, because they were gone, but she didn't see them on the craft. This craft came in really quickly and uh, put out a blue light, like a beautiful 
uh, royal blue kind of light. And it kept expanded until she walked into it and was absorbed into the craft and ended up in a, a foyer kind of uh, situation being met by four uh, non-human entities who looked fairly human. The uh, And she was very, very nervous. And they put this thick kind of felt vest around her that immediately calmed her down. There were two men about six feet tall. One looked about 40, one looked about 30. They were dressed in tight blue uniforms with uh, chevrons on the chest. One of them had two lines under the chevron. And there were two women standing behind them who were dressed in the most beautiful, iridescent um, uniforms as well. And they were wearing a kind of a gold necklace that was uh, about an inch thick that came down into a chevron uh, shape, sort of matching what the men had. The women appeared to be in their 20s. All of them have light brown hair that was pulled back and brown eyes. And they st- stood aside for her to move into the craft. And she saw this beautiful wall. Everything was beautiful in there uh, of, of blue. And then uh, she felt like it was the craft was somehow revving up, although it wasn't making a revving sound. And as it did, uh, there was movement in the wall. It was almost like a beautiful water wall, but it wasn't water. Uh, She saw green on the bottom, and she received the message that there were many, many numbers in there, and it had to do with the craft's propulsion. And uh, so the craft took off, left. She was told not to touch that wall because it could harm her and she kept wanting to touch it because it was so beautiful Uh, she went into another room and she was looking for the windows how do you navigate Um, you don't have any windows and they explained to her that they had a kind of smart window that would appear when they wanted it too but they didn't need to navigate the craft because it had its own intelligence and that it uh, would hop through time and space. And the next thing she knew, they had arrived at this way station kind of place. She didn't know where it was. It was uh, sitting on the ground. Uh, There was uh, like a, a crystal clear area where she could see inside. And there were also like... uh I don't know, some kind of pipes that held it together, piping or something. And it was in different colors and beautiful, almost like neon lights uh, that glowed beautifully. Everything she saw was beautiful. And uh, so she looked in there, and this was the way station where this craft was going to recharge. So this was more or less a visit. What she found out is that they, uh, even though they looked young, stated that they lived to be eight to nine hundred years old. That they lived now on a planet uh, that had two suns, a binary star system, 
And uh, so they lived in twilight much of the time, but they grew vegetables. They were vegetarians. Um, and they had limited population uh, because they lived so long, they didn't want to become overpopulated. They had learned a lesson because they claimed they lived on the earth hundreds of thousands of years ago. And because of human activity, uh, their environment was no longer sustainable. And they had developed the technology to leave this planet. So they went off elsewhere. And they were the only uh, race on this particular planet that they were on now. But they came back to the Earth from time to time to check on our development. I guess that some of those humans ended up staying on this planet. Uh, apparently they didn't have the money or whatever it took to leave. And a few did survive. But... Um, so that was information that she obtained from them that she found very interesting. And they told her that they had known her from the beginning of time, too. And that uh, she, uh, through many lifetimes, and so she was, had a soul that was like their souls, but she was here to live the human experience and for them to come and communicate with her throughout her lifetime. So here she was, thinking that she, throughout her lifetime, was having paranormal experiences with ghosts in her house. That's why she became a paranormal researcher. But suddenly she's realizing that, and they're telling her, that no, uh, it was them who came from the time she was a little girl and took her to craft. Uh, very fascinating. And then they you know, returned her, and I've already told you the rest of the story. Sure, sure. One of the uh, scenes from Mary Poppins uh, has uh, Mary with her tape measure measuring the little boy, and instead of numbers, it has statements about the boy, and, he, and she measures him and says, aha, extremely stubborn and suspicious. <laughs> well, that's us. Um, and uh, you, you, you're familiar with our work, uh, maybe more than, than a lot of other people. And uh, yep. we're extremely stubborn and suspicious when it comes to a lot of these messages and things, mainly because at least it strikes us that it, it doesn't. They don't always. They sometimes conflict, and um, we don't trust anything we, we get from from these these guys unless you know there, there's. Um, a lot of positive energy around it, or you know, whatever. So, uh, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, we've we've consulted together on, on uh, several cases where there've been crossover phenomena, as it's called. You know, people, as you mentioned, who have, have abduction experiences and then have ghosts and uh, demonic activity in the houses and all this sort of thing. Um, what what would you do, or what do you do to to test, or can you test, the statements of people who receive? information from extraterrestrial sources if that's what the sources are well what I have to do initially is to determine if they can be led under hypnosis because we all know that it's easy to confabulate mm. under hypnosis so um, I that's one thing to see if they can be led and to uh, never ask leading questions uh, to uh, do my best not to ask anything that has not already been stated and to build on that. Uh, so that's one thing I do. I also 
have input. Well, we had open-ended questions on MUFON's experience or questionnaire about our survey, that large study I did. And so I was able to get feedback from many, many experiences. And what I did was there were some that were just not like the others. But I found over and over and over again I was receiving similar messages from individuals. Hmm. And Ray Hernandez found that with the free organization as well. So I think okay. that, you know, when you have repeatability like that, then uh, I'm more likely to trust what is stated. Yeah, I respect that. Uh, <clears throat> I want to give Ben a chance to uh, ask anything he has, but before we, we uh, run out of time here, please tell us about your website, your books, uh, where people can find out more, and your appearances. Yes. Uh, well, my website is Kathleen, with a K, dash Martin, dot com. Uh, I hope you'll go there because I have just put up a Stanton Friedman page. Oh. Uh, I'm also selling autographed copies of his book um, about, uh, what is it called? Sci- uh, sci- well, it's a science uh, Science book. was wrong? Uh, no, that's our book together. This oh, okay. is the one book that he wrote without me. And... Uh, so, I, get, I can uh, see it too. We're having senior moments here. I think. Yeah, I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> uh, this book, my new book that will be released in September, uh, is available on my website. So you can go there, Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted. So oh, cool. I'm, I'm very proud of that uh, book. And uh, we and all of the other books too. Autographed copies are available of Captured, uh, Science Was Wrong, The Alien Abduction Files, but uh, also Stanton's book Without Me that is autographed by him. Oh, very and, good. Uh, I'm continuing to work on the Stanton Friedman page. I received a song that was written about Stanton by a college professor, a <laughs> physicist, and he sent me that. It's on YouTube now, so I'm going to post that on my website. Oh, we can't wait to see that. That's, that's yeah, great. So it's, yeah. it's a really nice song about Stanton. Um, I'm away for the weekend. I'm doing this from a friend's house. Uh-huh. But, uh, when I arrive home, I'll do that, too. But you can now watch a video of Stanton. Excellent. Um, and many thanks to your friend for allowing you to uh, be with us today. Uh, yes, she's, so, uh, she's yeah. a peach. And she actually contributed two chapters to this book. Oh, very good. She is on MUFON's experience. Oh, you're kind of freezing up there a bit. Okay, okay. Yeah, you froze up there for just a moment, but but it's okay. Oh, did I? Yeah, mm-hmm. we've got you. So uh, that'll be good. Well, Exit of UFO Festival, we'll both have new books. We'll have a lot of fun. It'll yes. Be right. And Stan yeah. will be, uh, we'll be with us, I'm sure. Very yes, good. in spirit. Exactly. So, um, Ben, did you have any questions? I did. Before? I spent the last twenty minutes trying to, to. I spent the last twenty minutes trying to figure out how to articulate it. Um, I still haven't figured it out. So okay. Just, so bear with me. Well, it's not like we never talked to Kathy, so we'll have. No, it. no. Right. But I, well, I need. I can. I can still ask it. Yes. Yeah, won't sure. be as, as eloquent as I'd like. Okay. Um, so, I I think it's it's interesting. The social sciences are fascinating to me. Because it's it's very hard to repeat certain certain aspects of of 
experiments, polls, statistics, and it seems like you've managed to capture a pretty, pretty, you know, not quite standard, but, you know, across the board, it seems relatively um, repeatable in some in in some cases which fascinates me. So if the message that is has been sort of passed down to the average joes that are having these experiences um is from either one faction or another whether hostile or benevolent how have you ever have you ever done any sort of research on how a non-experiencer sort of reacts to these messages? Uh well I did on the first study that Denise Stoner and I did where uh, we asked those questions to the general population, uh, 25 people, and they did not have the commonalities that experiencers have, uh, such as uh, having uh, observed a UFO up close and personal within 500 feet. That was one of the questions we asked. Have you, have you had this experience? And uh, a very high percentage, 65% of the overall experiencers who took part in the survey, but 70% of the abductees had. Uh, So that's not uh, common among the general population. Uh, First, uh, well, no, I can't say first contact. Sleep paralysis. Have you had sleep paralysis? Well, 74% of the experiencers said they had 90% of the abductees. Hmm. Well, are you just having sleep paralysis? Only a fairly small percentage of the general population has this this experience. So then we went on and asked, were you wide awake when you had sleep paralysis? Did you see non-human entities and then have this paralysis? And... Among the experiencers who believe they've they've been taken, only 36%. But among the abductee group, those with uh, alien abduction syndrome, it was uh, 60%. So, uh, and among the general population, certainly not that high. We tested that on um, medical conditions, such as chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome, Um, fibromyalgia, uh, migraine headaches. Among the general population, those occur at a much, much lower rate than among experiencers. Uh, Even paranormal experiences in the home. We found that quite a few members of the general population have had at least one paranormal experience. But among those who were in the abductee group, there were two paranormal types of experiences that happened. One is light orbs in the home that seemed to have be under intelligent control. And the other was the feeling that something in, unseen is walking on their mattress, on their bed. We hear that a lot. Common. Yeah, mm-hmm. Kathy, I'm afraid we're out of time. But oh. uh, Kathy Martin, we'll, we always talk to you off the air, and this we again only scratch the surface. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so very okay. much. Indeed, great okay. to be with you again. Very good. Well, it's great to have you again we'll soon. We'll get you next time. Okay. All right, our announcements here. Um, most of our show website, uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, is back up and running after being down for a week because of a cyber attack. 
uh, we're gradually restoring the 850 or so shows and podcasts from the archives, along with other elements, uh, so please be patient. Uh, that's going to take some time. Uh, two months to go before our next public event on Tuesday, August 6th at 7 p.m., I'll be at the Nashua Public Library in Nashua, New Hampshire, to present a program entitled Extreme UFO Encounters in New Hampshire and Beyond. And right after that, on Saturday, August 17th at 2 p.m., we'll be at the Haverhill Public Library in Haverhill, Massachusetts, to present uh, on Extreme UFO Encounters in Massachusetts and Beyond. Uh, my book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, will be released on August 28th, and we'll be in stores after that, and we'll feature at our, all our fall events. It's now available for pre-order on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, and uh, other re- retailers online. Uh, the official release will take place with our good friends at the Toadstool Bookshop in Keene, New Hampshire, on Saturday, September 21st, beginning at 2 p.m. But before that, we'll be at the uh, 2019 uh, Exeter UFO Festival, where we will speak for the eighth year in a row, as well as do our fourth annual live broadcast from this show, uh, or of the show, I should say, uh, with a panel of the speakers on Sunday, September 1st, uh, from the historic Exeter New Hampshire Town Hall, and the great event is sponsored by the Exeter Kiwanis Club uh, that benefits local children's charities. And our guest today, Kathy Martin, will be joining us for that. Uh, other events this fall will take place at the Book Club Bookstore in South Windsor, Connecticut, Book Lovers Gourmet in Webster, Massachusetts, and the Blackstone Public Library, uh, both right here in our home listening area, and of course, the Greater New England UFO Conference in Leominster, Massachusetts, on Columbus Day weekend, and Mount Hope Farm in Bristol, Rhode Island in October. So you can get our books, including uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard Of. Uh, they're available from online retailers and in some stores, but for autographed copies, you can visit our uh, online bookstore, BehindTheParanormal.com, which is up, yes? Uh, it is, yes. Uh, not fully, but it's there. <laughs> it's functional. The, the, the primary things are there. The, the two years of shows are there. we got ten years of shows to re-upload again, but anyway, there it is. Um, and please also check out our uh, charities. And uh, what do we have in the fridge for next week, Ben? So we're going to be uh, not heating up. Well, actually, I guess it will be heating up some leftovers, which is uh, <laughs> show questions. So that's uh, on June 16th. We'll bring you an open line show on all sorts of paranormal subjects with our popular guest co-host, Sheen Searway. And uh, you can get your questions, too. Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com, and you can message us on Facebook or during the show, uh, 401-766-1240. And again, on the 23rd of June, we'll do a tribute show to Stan Friedman. Uh, We leave you this afternoon with a thought from person or persons unknown, perhaps from some sedate English gardener. Uh, Whatever life, wherever life plants you, bloom with grace. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.